In his ancient Greek epic, The Odyssey, Homer begins a section of his fable on the Greco island of Ithaca, an island country that had been absent of their ruler and their king, Odysseus, for over 20 years. And in those two decades without a king, Ithaca had fallen to nearly complete ruin and disorder to such a degree that the king's own household and property at the time of the story's beginning is being invaded by obstinate suitors who want to take Ithaca's queen and throne by force. Fortunately, the king's son, Prince Telemachus, is there to defend the last remnants of his mother's honor and his father's kingdom. And as the wicked suitors all gather around him to mock him and to mock the idea of his or anyone else's kingship, Homer describes that Telemachus looks around him. He looks at his mother cowering behind her bedroom door. He looks at the suitors arrogantly lounging on their faded furniture, eating the last of their food. He looks out through the ruined walls of the palace and down on the island below, and once a once great country fallen into disorder and disrepair. And Telemachus mentions in that moment, it is no bad thing to be a king, to see one's house enriched and one's authority enhanced. And Homer's opening lesson was quite clear. It is not a bad thing to have a king, to have a person present in authority who oversees graciously life in order to protect his people and provide for them enduring peace. It is no bad thing to have a king. And in fact, Scripture backs that up. Proverbs 29, verse 4 says, By justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts and bribery tears it down. It is no bad thing to have a king as long as that king is the right one. And that begins the long and storied history of the human race. We need a king, but we need the right one. And we are not that king. When we try to be that king, the results are disastrous. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man. Or better yet, take a look at your own life. When you try to seize control, right? When you try to oversee and navigate your own life. When you try to take the throne and rely upon yourself for your own protection, our own provision, or your own peace, you and I fail utterly. We need a king who can give us provision and protection and guidance and peace found beyond ourselves. And we're not that king. And when we try to be that king, the results are disastrous. And when we try to find that king, the results are disappointing. I think of 1 Samuel chapter 8 when Israel demanded a king so that they could be like all the other nations that were around them. God warned them that demanding a king at that point uh, would not give them what they needed, but they were insistent. And so God gave Israel's heart's desire to them in the person of King Saul. He was a man who was weak, who was proud, selfish, irreverent, idolatrous, hypocritical, and fake. And the line of kings that came after Saul, if you study your Bible, was not much better. Sure, there was David, a man after God's own heart, but you study his life, even he failed so badly that over 70,000 men died because of his lack of judgment and even three of his own sons perished 
And the kings after David, with few exceptions, just slowly slid deeper and deeper into sin and corruption. Lord Acton was correct when he wrote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. History proves this to be true. Even in a democracy like our own, or representative republic, excuse me, like the United States with its checks and balances, it is inescapable. Those who take power, even out of a desire to wield it for good, are soon, all too often, corrupted by it. We need a king that we cannot be. We need a king that we cannot find. We need a king, but we need the right one. One who will be present in his authority, who will give us provision, protection, guidance, and peace beyond ourselves. So that brings us to our, more, our passage this morning, which is found in the Old Testament book of Micah. If you're wondering where that is, you have a table of contents. Look it up. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, turn to Micah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Micah 5, 2 through 5, which is a passage that introduces us to the Redeemer King that you and I need. Now to give you some context for this passage, because every passage is found in a context, the book of Micah takes its title from a prophet of the same name who was inspired by God to write it. Micah, whose name means who is like Yahweh, served God in the southern kingdom of Judah between 735 and 710 BC, and he wrote this prophetic sermon at an interesting point in Judah's history. The nation at that time was fading under poor leadership, under poor kings. King Jotham, who was the king at the beginning of Micah's ministry, was only concerned about economic prosperity. As he focused on propping up Jacob's, or Judah's economy and military might, spiritual and social corruption was slowly beginning to eat the country of Judah from the inside out. This corruption burst forth horrifically under the reign of King Ahaz as the grossest forms of idolatry and immorality took center stage in the culture of Judah. And the nation, though they were prosperous, had given themselves over to a twisted form of nationalistic idolatry that viewed nothing else as more important than the prosperity of the nation. As a result, Judah experienced the collapse of nearly all social and moral values for an entire generation until King Hezekiah took the throne around 715 B.C. It is to a a nation in the middle of that type of civil, social, and moral chaos that God, through Micah, writes this letter. And as he indicts the nation for their gross acts of betrayal and immorality, God, in the third chapter of this letter of Micah, also condemns those who were in leadership. For rather than being a check on the evil and corruption within the nation, they were a part of it. For example, listen to what God says here in Micah chapter 3, verse 1. He says, and I say, hear you heads of Jacob. And rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? And then look at verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. You build Zion with blood 
and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. In short, Judah had bad, bad leadership. And what were the religious leaders doing this time of national corruption? Micah 3.5 says, The prophets, they also lead my people astray, crying peace when they have something to eat, but declaring war against him who put nothing into their mouths. In other words, it didn't matter to the religious leaders whether those in government were righteous. All that mattered to the religious leaders, well, who will make me rich? Who will put food into my mouth? And if that leader can make me rich, who cares if they're righteous or not? A wicked man that makes me rich is better than a wicked man who makes me poor was the thought in that day. This was the state of the nation of Judah. The nation was consuming itself from the inside out in transgression and sin. The government, which was designed by God to be a check on sin and corruption, was participating in it. And the religious leaders whom God had instituted to be a check on the government were also participating in that sin and corruption as well. They were profiting off of it. Good and evil, justice and judgment, peace and righteousness, no one in authority in that day, whether civil or religious, cared about those things in Judah anymore. All that mattered was, who will give me power? Who will give me prosperity? Who will make me richer than my neighbor? The nation had a leadership problem. And God says in Micah 3, verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. That picture of judgment is picked up again in the chapter that's before us today in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, which reads, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So Israel is going to be judged. Judah is going to be judged because of the sins of the people and the iniquity of their rulers because no one put a priority on truth, justice, goodness, or righteousness. Jerusalem was going to be flattened It was going to be overrun by enemies and their unrighteous kings whom they had so much trusted in was going to be defeated, mocked, and treated shamefully. And all because they had an authority problem. One that, ladies and gentlemen, if you've looked around, exists even to today. We still need a king. You and I still need a king who will always rule, but rule in truth and justice and goodness and righteousness. A king who will give us provision, protection, guidance, and peace. A king who cannot be touched by power and the corruption that it brings to us fallen mortal men. We need a king we cannot be. You and I need a king we cannot find. But as we'll see today, we need a king that has already been given and indeed is coming again. See, this God whom we worship would not stay apart from us who were in this plight. He would come near to redeem and save and restore. And so 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Micah records this strange description of God's coming Savior King. And this is what I want to present to you today so that we might enter into this Christmas week worshiping Christ as we ought. In verse 2, Micah records the two origins of the Savior King. He doesn't just have one, he has two. 
Then in verse 3, Micah indicates the two times of this Savior King. He doesn't just enter into time once. He enters into time twice. And then finally, in verses 4-5, through Micah outlines the two tasks of the Savior King. So the two origins, the two times, and the two tasks of the Savior King. The Savior King that you and I need. So with that in mind, let's read Micah chapter 5. Verses 2 through 5. Prophet Micah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and He shall be their peace. This is the Word of God whose presence and judgments cause our flesh to tremble. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for how this passage set before us presents a rich feast for us as it presents to us the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You That though we are sinners, and through our sin, we see the results throughout our entire broken world, from the least of us to the greatest, we thank You that in Your love, You sent the Redeemer King we need. And that though His redemptive work has begun, it is not finished. And though the kingdom has been inaugurated, it has not been brought into fullness. And there is a day coming when He who is King shall be King over all the earth. And in that day, all things will be made right. Father, I pray that You would give us a glimpse of that glory this morning so that we would worship our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, this week as we ought to. Thank You for sending us the Redeemer King that we need. Show us once again this morning His beauty and majesty we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah, in writing to a nation that is overcome by corruption in the highest of places, encourages his listeners to cast their eyes upward to the Redeemer King that has been given that they need. And he does this first by revealing to us the two origins of the Savior King. And in this verse, verse 2, Micah indicates that the Messiah, God's saving promised King, would surprisingly enough have two origins. A human origin and a divine origin. Though that revelation doubtless would have 
had Micah's original audience and perhaps even Micah himself scratching their heads, it's exactly what God describes here. First, look at the Savior King's human origin. That's at the beginning of verse 2, where Micah writes, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So here as Judah is embroiled in the chaos of sinful leadership, God promises in the coming future a king that would come from the town of Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah being the ancient name, by the way, of the region where Bethlehem is found. Now Bethlehem is an interesting town when you study it in Scripture. Partially because it's barely mentioned in the Old Testament for it to take such prominence in the New Testament. For example, in the list of over 100 different Israelite towns given in Joshua chapter 15 and Nehemiah chapter 11, Bethlehem doesn't even make the list. It is so small and so insignificant. As Micah mentions here, it is too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem was just a little village on the map, a blip and you miss it type of place. That's why it's barely mentioned in the Old Testament. And yet the few times that Bethlehem is mentioned in the Old Testament, it sends prophetic tremors throughout the rest of Scripture into this passage in Micah 5 and on into the New Testament. You see, Bethlehem, for barely being mentioned, was the place in Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 20, where Isaac's wife Rachel died giving birth to her youngest son. And as she lay dying, Rachel called her son born in Bethlehem, son of my sorrow. But Jacob called him son of my glory. So in Israel's history, Bethlehem was the location where a son both of sorrow and of glory was to be born. Bethlehem was also a place where in Ruth 4 verse 11, Boaz became the kinsman redeemer to a Gentile Moabite woman named Ruth and brought her, who was a pagan, cut off from the promises of God, into the family of the Messiah. And then finally, for barely being mentioned, Bethlehem was the place where in 1 Samuel 17, verse 12, David himself was born, who became Israel's shepherd king, and through whom God promised to send the Messiah, Israel's greatest and eternal king. So when you study the accounts of Scripture, Bethlehem, keeps on being identified with this idea of a redeemer king, of a son who through his suffering would bring deliverance and who through his kingship would bring glory. It is from this place of royalty, this place of redemption, this place of obscurity that the promised king, Micah 5 says, would come. A place place that is very significant in the eyes of God, but very insignificant in the eyes of man, which is, by the way, how God always works. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 states, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God delights in taking that which is low and despised and overlooked by this world and make it significant for eternity. That's what God did for the little town of Bethlehem, and it's what God does for every single one of His children who come to Him. From Bethlehem, Micah says, shall come forth, notice, for me, 
one who is to be ruler in Israel. Don't overlook those two very important words. Why would this Savior King come? Why would He come to earth? Did He come to meet our needs? Did He come to show us the way of righteousness and to be a good example? Did He come even ultimately to save us from our sins? Is that why Jesus came? The answer is no, not ultimately. Although He does do all those things. When we bow the knee to Christ in faith, when we entrust our soul and our eternity to His saving sovereignty, yes, Jesus does meet our deepest needs. Yes, He does show us the way of wisdom to walk in. And yes, He most surely saves us from our sins. You shall call His name Jesus, for He saves His people from their sins. But those are the consequences of His coming, not the cause of it. Believe it or not, you are not at the center of the Christmas story. Or any story that's ever happened in all of history. God in His own glory is. God is. And we exist for His purpose, not the other way around. As 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6 says, There is one God, the Father, from whom, and all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. The coming of the Savior King was no different. He came to serve the purposes of God. That's why Hebrews 10, 5-7 records that when Christ came into this world to be born in Bethlehem, He said to the Father, A body you have prepared for Me, and I have come, why? To do your will as it is written of Me. So that's why the Redeemer King came. He came, ultimately not on behalf of us, He came on behalf of God to do His will. And praise God, God's will was to save His people from their sins. So this is the human origin of the Redeemer King. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, roughly written around the same time as Micah, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, one where the government would be upon His shoulders, and the saving King, that's the saving King talked about here. God promised that He would be given, that He would be born, and now from Micah we know from where He would be born. He would be born from Bethlehem. This is the human origin of the saving king. But what's interesting here, and where Mike all of a sudden takes a sharp turn and surprises you, is that this ruler in Israel not only has a human origin, he also has a divine origin. Look at the end of verse 2. Not only does the Savior King come forth from Bethlehem, but God also says here his coming forth is from of old. From ancient days, literally in the Hebrew, from everlasting days, from the days of eternity. So how long has this Savior King, who was to be born in Bethlehem, how long has He existed? Answer, from eternity past. In fact, that very word olam in the Hebrew is used to describe God Himself over in Psalms verse 90 verse 2 when, when Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. In other words, God as God has always existed, and so has this Savior King. He's always existed from of old, from everlasting days. And so that's why Isaiah 9, verse 6 says that when this child would be born and this son would be given, he would be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? His coming forth is from everlasting the same as God. Why? Because this Savior King that was to be born was God. He was divine. This is exactly what we hear from the moment you open up the New Testament. John 1, 1-2 states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
That word was Jesus. Colossians 1, 17-18 says of Jesus, He is before all things. We studied this as a church, right? He is the beginning. And in Revelation 22, verse 13, Jesus Himself declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In John 8, 58, Jesus said before His own enemies, before Abraham was, I am eternal present. I always was. I always am. So Micah shows us here that what was true of God the Father is true of this promise-saving King who was to come that was prophesied 700 years before the coming of Jesus. His coming forth would be from everlasting. So he has a human origin, Bethlehem. He also has a divine origin, eternity, human and divine, God and man. How can both of those two things be true? Answer in the God-man Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God and He was born in Bethlehem just as God through the prophet Micah had foretold 700 years before. So these are the two origins of the Savior King we need. Now I want you to consider the two times of the Savior King. It's in verse 3. And this is why I was burdened to share this passage, honestly. Because everybody loves preaching Micah 5, verse 2. How many sermons have you heard preaching Micah chapter 5, verses 3 through 5? But that is the reason why this passage is given, is to give us hope not just of a first coming, but of a second coming. Around the holidays, we are poignantly reminded that most men and women have a very narrow view of Jesus Christ. If you were to ask the average person on the street to tell you something about Jesus and describe to you the events of Jesus' life, they would probably say something like this. Well, he was born in a manger. Some wise men gave him some gifts. And honestly, that's all I know about Jesus. See, in most people's minds, when they think of Jesus, they think only of a baby who is lying in a manger. That is a very deficient view of who Jesus is. If you were to ask them about anything else that happened in Jesus' life, they'd probably drop a blank. In their minds, Jesus never grew up. He's still a baby lying in a manger. Now to those of us who are Christians, who are more acquainted with Christ's life, we might have a slightly fuller view. right? We might say, well, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He taught people God's Word while performing many miracles. He died for our sins, and He rose again. Now that's a lot better than the first, but I want to challenge you this morning, that's still a deficient view of Jesus' life. Because you see, Jesus didn't just die and rise again. He ascended into heaven where He's now seated at the right hand of God until the time appointed when He will come again. It's not just that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. It's that all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. This is around the time when we as Christians often have a deficient view of Jesus around the holidays. We think of Jesus as the Savior King who has come and not as the Savior King who is coming. And yet that is exactly indeed primarily why God through the prophet Micah wants us to think of Him. He wants us to think of Him so that we would remember that He is the one who has not just come but the one who is coming. Look at verse 3. It says, Therefore, He shall give them up, He, that is, that one that was promised, that ruler in Israel, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of His brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Notice, after the one who is to be ruler in Israel comes, He does something shocking, doesn't He? 
I mean, you would think when a king comes, right, when he would come, you would expect a king to immediately, at his coming, gather his people around him and establish his kingdom, right? And in fact, that's exactly what the people of Israel thought Jesus was going to do the first time he came, right? They were ready by force to take him and make him king. But that is not what was prophesied in the prophet Micah, right? That is not what the promised king does. Micah says that once this king comes, rather than establish his people, he will, it says here, give them up for a time. You say, give them up to what? Well, to give them up to the rule of others, right? Obviously not to the rule of the Messiah. It would be the rule of others, to the Gentiles. As Luke 21, verse 24 states, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Right? They'd be given over. That is the history of Israel. After 70 AD, Israel was just taken out of existence, ruled over by others from 70 AD until today. Even right now, though Israel's been restored to the land, and you better believe that's significant, there is still a Muslim mosque smack dab in the middle of the Jerusalem Temple Mount. Because of their unbelief shown at his first coming, Jesus has departed and given them up for a time in accordance to the prophet Micah. But he has not abandoned them. He's not finished. He's not finished with his redemptive work. Because look at verse 3. It says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor, that is Israel, has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. See, the Savior King has given up His nation, but there is a time coming, a time prophesied over in a parallel passage. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob's travail, literally Jacob's birth pangs. When all Israel will undergo seven years of intense, laborious, oh my goodness, speaking of labor, and increasing tribulation, Tribulation that will bring them to their knees and bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ till finally the King whom they have pierced will come in the skies and they will behold Him whom they have pierced and receive the salvation and forgiveness that has been promised them. When that happens, Jesus will return to restore the kingdom to Israel. As God says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's what Micah is describing here in Micah chapter 5. There are two times of the Savior King. Jesus is not finished yet. If you think the world is still broken, it is. But He's not done working. He's not done saving. He's not done restoring and redeeming and fulfilling the promises of God. So these are the two times of the Savior King and both of which must be celebrated by us as we consider the nature of Christ this holiday season. He's not just someone who's come. He is someone that you must have to do with for He is coming again. Are you ready? Are you ready? From Micah chapter 5, verse 3. Are you ready? So we've seen the two origins and we've seen the two times. 
of the Savior King. And finally, let's see the two tasks of the Savior King. And that is from verse 4 into the beginning of verse 5, right? And here God reveals through the prophet Micah that this Savior King was to be the solution of all the problems that Judah had ever been embroiled in and is the solution to all of our problems as well. We need a king. And we need not just not any king. We need the right king. A king will always rule in truth, justice, goodness, and righteousness, who will always give us provision, protection, guidance, and peace, who cannot be touched by power and the corruption that it brings. We need a king we cannot be, and we need a king we cannot find. And hallelujah, that king has come, and he is coming again. And when he comes, he will provide two things for all those who have trusted in him. Powerful protection and personal peace. Powerful protection and personal peace. Look at verse 4. It says, and he shall stand, and he shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Notice, Micah says that the first thing this Savior King who is to come will do when he comes again is he shall stand. That is paralleled in in Zechariah 14, verse 4, when it says that the king, when the king comes down out of heaven on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies beyond Jerusalem to the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. So after, picture it in your mind, after hundreds and thousands of years of wicked, corrupt, evil, gluttonous, lying, oppressive leadership in governments all around the world, the Savior King will at last take his Stand upon this earth and he will personally bring deliverance to all his people. And after hundreds and thousands of years of greedy, unfaithful, hypocritical, unspiritual, earthly leadership from those who called themselves shepherds, the Savior King will personally lead and shepherd his flock. And notice, how will he do this? Will it be through armies? Will it be through weapons? Will it be through swords and spears? No, those things will be destroyed. Micah says earlier in chapter 4, verse 3, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the saving king won't rule by those carnal means. He will shepherd his people directly, notice, in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. See, his people will follow him because of the greatness of his divine strength and majesty. They will worship him because he is worthy. In that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is not a babe in a manger. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will follow him as king because he is worthy. Unlike all the kings and princes of men that have ever existed, the saving king who is coming is worthy of all the power and all the authority that could ever be laid at his feet. He is worthy of all of it. As Revelation 5 verse 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is worthy. End of verse 4. And they, that is the king's people, the king's flock, shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
Again, this parallels Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 14.11, which says the whole land shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. In short, wherever Jesus reigns, there is powerful protection. And that is true even now. In John 10.28-29, Jesus borrowing the shepherd imagery from Micah 5 says this, I give My sheep eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Wherever Jesus reigns, there is powerful protection. Second, there is personal peace. It says, and He shall be their peace. I want you to notice here that peace is a person. Peace is a person. It's not a state of mind. It's not a covenant or a treaty. Peace is a person. He shall be their peace. Peace is found in the person and the presence of Jesus, for He alone is our peace, as, I, as Ephesians 2.14 says. And this again is parallel over in Isaiah verses 9-6 through where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his kingdom there shall be no end. As Zechariah declared before Jesus' birth, God has visited us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And as the angel sang to the shepherds that first night, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Wherever Jesus reigns, there is peace. Peace with God and peace within. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God has created us to have a relationship with Him, but our sin had separated us from God and it had put us at enmity with Him in His holiness. And yet, through the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ the Savior King, God has made a way of peace. By dying for our sins and taking God's wrath in our place and through us receiving His perfect righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you in turmoil within you? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Receive in Him the gift of righteousness and peace that can only be found through faith in Him. This is wonderful, marvelous, and matchless peace. Peace that the world cannot touch. As Jesus said in John 14, verse 27, the night before His death, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. I have a question for you, believer. In the midst of this chaotic world, marked by corruption from the least of us to the greatest, are you reflecting a life of faith in the Micah chapter 5 type of king? The one who brings peace. Because that's what we need to be demonstrating this Christmas. Not anxiety, not worry, not fear, but absolute confidence and assurance that the one who has come is coming again. He will take His stand. He will shepherd His flock. 
and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. It is true. Wherever Jesus reigns, there is powerful protection and there is personal peace. It is good to have a king. It is good to have a king, especially when the king is like this. Pure, perfect, powerful, present, full of peace, and not finished with this world yet. He's the king we need. He's the king we need. Put not your trust in chariots, nor in the strength of men. Put your trust in the perfect king that God has already provided. He's the king we need. And so this week I encourage you, believer, to worship Jesus by your life for who he is this week. Not as a baby, but as God and as man and as the Redeemer King prophesied in Micah 5. Worship him as the one who was and who is and who is to come. He is the king we can never be. He is the king we can never find. He is the king you will never elect. He's the king we need, the king we're longing for, and the king who's already been given. And he is coming soon in the strength and majesty of the Lord to offer to all those who have trusted in him complete forgiveness, powerful protection, and personal peace. Will you be ready when he comes again? Worship and receive Christ as your Redeemer King, for he is the King you need. This is the Word of God from Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until this come king comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Jesus. Father, I pray that You would help us to walk into our interactions this week with a full view of who He is. Perhaps, Father, rather than reading on Christmas morning about Christ's first advent, it might be fitting to read about His second. For He is not some child meek and mild. He is coming soon as the King of glory with salvation, with righteousness, with healing in His wings. So Father, I pray that You would help us first if there's someone here this morning that is not ready to meet the King who is coming. That they would trust in Him today. May they recognize the reason why He came the first time. To bring salvation to those who are sinners. And Father, for those of us who have trusted in Him, may we live lives of faith this week recognizing the reason why He's coming again is to bring deliverance to His people. May our hope and our confidence and our expectation and our peace be grounded in Him and in Him alone, the perfect King that we need. Thank You for the gift of Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.